0: On the weekend of the 22nd of October, the Barbican Centre will once again play host to the Battle Ideas Festival. The weekend long event will feature two days of high level, thought provoking public debate, and within that, a variety of topics will be discussed within a variety of different formats of discussion. And with this mini-series, what we're hoping to do is showcase some of the topics covered and the people who will be covering them.
1: Yeah, my name is Ian Dunt, I'm the editor of politics of Credit UK and I had eggs and cheese and watermelon for breakfast.
0: That's a pretty rowdy breakfast.
1: No, that is indeed what I did.
0: Well, is that a regular there? It happens, <yeah. laughs> I
1: mean, not all at the same time, you know. The, the okay. watermelon was my breakfast dessert. Okay, but,
0: but the cheese and the eggs were integrated. Of
1: course, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're not going to have that separate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've answered that question many a time before.
0: At this year's festival, Ian Dunn will be speaking in a session entitled The New Populism. And I started by asking him exactly how one goes about defining new populism.
1: Right, well, I mean, I, I may not be the best person to speak to with this sort of thing, because I don't really believe that populism is a thing. I think populism basically says more about the person saying the word than it does the recipient of of that word. So... I mean, if I was to say, you know, I I can't find my way to Liverpool, you could say, oh, Ian doesn't know how to find his way to Liverpool. You could say Ian is ignorant of where Liverpool is. And that would just suggest that you don't like me rather than, you know, any actual information about my ignorance. And it's the same with populism. People just say populism for opinions they do not agree with that seem to have some resonance with the public. And that pretty much is all that it is. I mean, you know, you can go back in history, you can look at like Perón in Argentina was called a populist and Corbyn is called... A, I mean, there's very little that connects these men. And in fact, Corbyn's called a populist. I mean, Lots of his opinions are not remotely popular. I mean, you know, his opinions on the IRA. These are not popular opinions in the British mainland or pretty much an island. So, I mean... It doesn't really have anything to say that it usually has a sort of insinuation that you're aiming for the lowest sort of you know the lowest level of the public or that you're dealing trading an easy policy stuff that you know will resonate strongly, but it, even that's not always the case. So, yeah, generally speaking, populism says more about the person saying it than it does the recipient of the words.
0: And is that is that a sort of view that's held? Because you sort of said, in your opinion, are there people who think that populism is itself like a, like a thing or a political movement?
1: Well, yeah, that, that's an interesting question. Um, on the one hand, the first thing is that most people don't really know how they're using words when they use them. So what you'll find is people using this word, and they mean it as a slur, and they haven't really assessed the way that many of their opinions have also been called that same word in a different situation. In terms of the newness of the term... What I think people are referring to right now is a resurgent sense of sort of nativism and identity politics on the left, and the right, where people are increasingly giving up on the idea of international cooperation and international identity, and even really working on problems at an international level, or even the kind of entertainment they consume on an international level, you know, so pop music or movies, and increasingly want something that reflects their sense of personal identity, whether it's tribal or religious or national or sexual or anything else. And I think that has been seized on by some quite canny, demagogish simpletons in political circles and sort of turned into a quite powerful political currency and that to me is where the new populism in as it exists actually lies
0: and and because you sort of touched upon it there that it, it seems to be both left and right yet in the media or in the general public or, or, or whoever decides what populism is it's, it tends to be associated more with the right why is that
1: Yeah, you know, I don't even know if that's even really true anymore. I mean, that's starting to slip away. You're right, the historical association was with the right. And I think typically that's probably because the right can much more easily present very colourful, powerful, compelling narratives that are around identity. So, you know, the classic example is 1930s, you've got, you know, global recession, terrible situation to be in, and Hitler and Mussolini come along. And they basically say, well, look, what's important is your race and your people, and we're going to do whatever is required in order to make... like." you know, Lebanon on the Scrum and all of that, you know, to, to, to basically make life for our race as good as possible. ¿Ustedes no ven el imperio Yankee. ¿Ustedes no ven la masacre que el estado genocida de Israel cometió contra un grupo de pacifistas que iban llevando una carga humanitaria al pueblo palestino que está en casa rodeado por todos lados, ¿Por Israel? you take someone like hugo chavez you know who's the former leader of of venezuela army general was dealing in left-wing populism but the the comparison is quite clear it just so happens that in that case it's not about race and it is mostly predominantly about class and you serve you serve your class more in that way so I, i think that's Kind of a misapprehension, the way that we associate it more with the right, and simply reflects something about the uniqueness of the historical circumstance in which we first started using this term. But no, como like Israel, se le permite de todo. Entonces, ese es un ejemplo de doble moral. El gobierno de Obama condena el terrorismo siempre y cuando no sea
0: cometido por ellos mismos you touched upon it with Hugo Chavez the sort of globality of of populism is there anything concurrent between say the, the, the populism in inverted commas here and that that's sort of following Donald Trump in America and that with Marine Le Pen in France. like Is there anything that, that connects all of them? Yeah, yeah. I
1: think th- these are all the same story. The same thing is happening across the West. It hasn't really affected other parts of the world, actually, funny enough. But in the West, we're all experiencing the same thing. You're right, Le Pen in France. You see, the same thing is happening everywhere. It's happening in Austria where they're about to get an out-and-out fascist as a, as a president, or even the fact that the two people running for president as a Green, you know, a- and an out-and-out fascist, both in their own way, sort of left-and-right-wing populists. It's happening in Germany, actually, to an extent that we haven't properly quite comprehended yet. It may not threaten Merkel, but it's still a pr- pretty extraordinary situation that she suddenly finds herself in. And I would suggest that what's happening here is, is a confluence of two things. The first one is technology, and the second one is economics. The economics is the old argument. You have a recession, you have a stagnation of wages, people don't feel that their lives are improving, they don't feel the system is working for them, they start looking for other answers. Technology is a double-edged sort of aspect to it. On the first hand, we have developed the ability to create bespoke information feeds. So you look at Twitter, you look at Facebook, Extraordinary numbers of people getting their news through social media. And that's not like watching TV where you have to see some stuff that you don't agree with to get to the stuff that you do. It's not even like looking at a newspaper where you'd at least have to turn the page of stuff that you disagreed with. Now we're just mainlining our own opinions back into our body in a way that makes us almost incapable of recognizing that there is an objective truth outside of our opinions, or that other people legitimately hold opinions that are not ours. The second aspect of the technological element is the fact that people in poor countries have mostly seen our lives in the West, and they thought, well, you know what, I, I want some of that. And so they're starting to come. I mean, a lot of it is refugee flows because of decivilization in North Africa and in the Middle East, but a lot of it are economic migrants in huge flows. And that technological two-edged sword has combined with the economics to create this sudden burst of identity politics on the left and the right that identity politics is typically called populism i don't think that's a useful phrase i think what we should call it is identity politics mostly concerned with a retreat to fundamental identities that we hold for instance our gender our sexuality or our country or our faith it could be left or right but it's always always a retreat
0: and is it just because as you were saying that there, something that struck me is the other sort of Popular word, excuse the, the <laughs> phrase, but the other sort of pop word we've seen coming, you know, after the likes of Brexit and with Donald Trump is this word of, of sort of post factualism. Is, is mm. that something that is always, or, or do you think that's something that is associated with this rise in new populism?
1: Yes, yeah, so, I mean, part of that comes as we're talking about social media and the way that we have just created our own echo chambers. We've straight ourselves with our own voices talking back at us, and we're sort of losing interest, frankly on what is actually true what we really care about is what does this fact say about us does it make us right does it make us look smart so undoubtedly that is that is a very important part of it but this process the post-truth process started a long time ago like that's i mean you know you could go back further but ultimately i think what starts that process is iraq i mean that's where you start to get a sense of the government will just say anything in order to fit the policy that they've already got and if you remember those new labor years We would constantly say things like, they're consulting having already decided what it is that they're going to do, as they frequently were. I mean, from the most sort of relatively innocuous policy, like the congestion charge that Livingston introduced, to Iraq itself, where those briefings just fitted whatever Downing Street had already decided needed to happen. And it carried on through. I mean, you take the sacking of Professor David Nutt as the chief advisor for the Advisory Council on the Misuse of Drugs. Specifically, because he told a statistical truth. He told two. Of that. He told, the first one was that statistically, it's much safer to take ecstasy than it is to ride a horse, which is statistically the truth. Secondly, he was hired by the Home Office in the Advisory Council position, in order to come up with some kind of statistical assessment of the relative harms of drugs. They looked at everything, you know, whether it's crime or whether it was threat to the body, anything like that. He came up with a system, described it at one meeting, and they instantly sacked him. Because, of course, the truth was, you know, something like alcohol, immeasurably more harmful to you than something like cannabis. That bridge starts there with Labour. It moves, I mean, you then look at, look at what George Osborne was doing with the deficit. Halfway through, you know, his time in government, he just changed the methodology of working out the deficit overnight. Nobody cared. Hardly anybody wrote about it, apart from a few sort of right-wing economists who were like, well, actually, hang on a minute. You're now talking about something else entirely. And yet this was the whole raison d'etre of the government. And overnight, he just changes the methodology. Nobody bats an eyelid so that you finally eventually get to the end point. And that's Donald Trump. I mean, we're, you know, we're speaking right now. He's just done a presidential debate. It doesn't matter. You know, he was just lying and lying. And, and people are, sat there on social media right now going, what is the point of us fact-checking? You know, as, as if... A, it doesn't make any difference to his polling whatsoever but more than that, the journalists themselves are starting to give up on the idea of truth they're starting to basically say what the public thinks is invariably you know, what becomes a sort of objective truth by some kind of imagined religious spiritual process utter nonsense of the highest order but nevertheless that's where we're going
0: And so is it more a case of populism representing the fact that the archaic political systems we do have might be slightly outdated? We basically have
1: two political parties in this country that represent social classes that have ceased to exist. I mean, you know, it made total sense having before as representatives of the landed class, representatives of the workers... And now, I mean, even people's sense of where they're from, I mean, there's lots of people who, under the Marxist sense, under their relationship to the means of production, would be considered working class. but certainly don't think of themselves as working class in any way, shape or form, and don't have that sense of solidarity or of class consciousness, I guess the Marxists would call it in that sense. And most landed people, what do they call themselves, you know, middle class or something? I mean, everyone's middle class now, you know what I mean? Like, I mean, the, the disparity there is, is huge. And what's most important there is that these people don't always have contrary interests anymore. And sometimes the contrary interests are not included in what, in that sort of old class assessment. There's a lot made of sort of alienated northern working class communities voting for Brexit. Slightly over-egged, by the way. I mean, two-thirds of Labour voters voted Remain. I mean, it, people act as if all of them went for Brexit. They didn't. Nevertheless, they were there and they were there with all of the golf club bores, with all of their money, you know, in the South. I mean, these people found common interest on something and that's basically by saying, well, I'm not happy with the status quo. Sometimes that's economic, feeling like you've been left behind by global capitalism. They usually have. And sometimes that's cultural and it's just a bunch of sort of, nasty, mean-spirited English people who just don't like the fact that there happens to be a Bangladeshi living next door. And that's still there. All of this gets swirled up together in one thing. And yeah, it's quite clear that as our political conversation changes, as the economic dynamics in our society have changed, our political system has not caught up with them. And you see the same thing happening in the States, which is kind of a shame that actually the threat of Labour splitting up doesn't look like it's going to happen because you do feel that there is a time for a realignment now. And actually, some of those groupings are becoming more clear. So increasingly, you get a sense that there is a nativism in this country where actually a lot of Labour voters and a lot of Tory voters have more in common, a lot of Labour MPs and Tory MPs have more in common than they do with people who still believe in general universal values of globalism and liberalism, basically the old centre, the old sort of Blairite centre. You could easily. In fact, you'd be much easier to have a time having that separation between two parties in the Commons than you would the one that we have right now. But nevertheless, it's quite hard to move away from brands. It's quite hard to move away from these very fossilised political structures. It takes a certain degree of chaos, which apparently we haven't reached yet. If it was going to happen, I suspect it would have happened a couple of months ago after the Brexit vote. It hasn't. And so I'm not sure that it will for some time.
0: And then finally, why why is it important, sort of off the back of that, why are events such as The Bad Life of Ideas, why are they important to have, these events where people Mm. talk about big things, talk about things that might be uncomfortable in other situations? Yeah, yeah.
1: I mean, Battle Ideas is, is just awesome. I mean, and, and really that's because this is something that we're losing. Partly, and that, that is the fact that so much of our debate takes place online, you can't see someone's face, you actually you, you feel like you're surrounded by followers, so you, you can't give an inch, you know, you have to, to stand up for each and every dot of it. Battle of Ideas takes you somewhere where you have to deal with the full range of someone's presence. You know, there might be someone that you quite like, it might be someone who holds themselves very confidently and it's tough. That face-to-face political debate is still so much more nutritious and so much more rewarding than you get by what you get online and it, by bringing people into that same room it shows that safe spaces are not necessary it is possible to be polite and civilised and kind and empathetic towards people while vociferously disagreeing with what they're saying and it's possible to fight for an issue without retreating into some form of identity or some form of protection in a group or any of that so actually basically it's like Glasto for political nerds I mean it's, it's a fantastic place to be I mean, it really is very, very good, and right now it's more important than ever before.
0: That's such a great way to describe
1: it. Thank you very very much. I won't mention that when I'm there, but (laughs) (laughs) nevertheless.
0: Lovely, that's it. Thank you so much. To find out more about the festival, head over to www.battleofideas.org.uk.